You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Putz, recording in Washington, D.C. And as always, I'm Ankit Panda, joining you from Washington, D.C. as well. Good to be back with you, Katie. How are you doing? Doing good. Uh, got got a little bit of summer travel uh, coming up. I'm actually heading back to uh, South Korea, which I'm uh, looking forward to. It'll be my first trip since May. It'll be good to be back in Asia. Fantastic. And then in September, I'm going to South Korea for the first time. So that will be very exciting. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, well, we'll convenient. We're going to talk about South Korea today. Uh, so, you know, for our, for our listeners, when we last recorded, uh, I think we mentioned an upcoming trilateral meeting between the leaders of the United States, South Korea and Japan. That trilateral meeting took place on August 18th at Camp David, which is a presidential retreat outside of Washington. It's a very storied past. Um, you know, although the presidents of the United States, South Korea and the Japanese prime minister, they, you know, meet in trilateral formats before they've always done so on the sidelines of other larger gatherings. So this was the first time that the three met in a standalone trilateral. And it seems pretty clear to me, at least that the U.S.'s intention is to institutionalize this format. Uh, obviously, this is a good moment then to reflect on this trilateral relationship, uh, how far it's come, where we think it's going. I want to start with the summit itself, Ankit. You know, the three leaders apparently signed three documents that are ostensibly designed to set this foundation for future cooperation. Um, what do you think the sort of major takeaways from these documents and from this meeting were? Yeah, so I think I think this summit is really rife with symbolism. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that's a secret at all. I think the White House was quite explicit that this was the idea going in, the choice of Camp David as a venue, the fact that the three leaders, uh, you know, had open shirt collars, weren't wearing ties, was meant to be sort of a familiar kind of interpersonal um, meeting between the three of them. Uh, and, and you know, this isn't the first time they've they've met uh, in this particular uh, constellation. They they met last fall in in Cambodia. Uh, you know, what's what's really remarkable is how quickly we've gotten to this point. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that, I think, comes down to, in particular, I would say political change in South Korea with the inauguration of not only a conservative administration in Seoul, because conservatives, generally speaking, in South Korea have been more open to pursuing rapprochement with Japan uh, and and trilateral cooperation, um, but specifically uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, who's been uh, remarkably willing to spend uh, a tremendous amount of political capital on um, reaching out to Japan uh, for a, a range of reasons. And of course, uh, the Biden administration, which, uh, as we've discussed previously on the podcast, uh, you know, came into office very much unapologetically in alliances, first administration seeking to build new um new sort of minilateral and and uh, trilateral arrangements. You know, you can look at AUKUS, you can look at what's happened to the Quad under under the Biden administration. I think trilateralism in Northeast Asia, where the United States has two of its most, most important global allies, South Korea and Japan, uh, has been something that the administration uh, was generally interested in. But when Biden was inaugurated, I don't think any of us thought that we would get to this point where, uh, you know, a South Korean president and Japanese prime minister would be standing beside Biden at Camp David. So, the symbolism here, I think, is quite significant. Um, there's, of course, a number of factors that have driven uh, the United States, Japan, and South Korea to this point, um, not least of which is, of course, North Korea's rapidly expanding nuclear and missile capabilities, but also growing concerns about China. Uh, and so you asked about the agreements. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot in these agreements, you know, everything from a new commitment to consult, uh, which I think is quite significant, right? It, it, it's an acknowledgement that... Um, 
security dynamics in the region are have a collective effect on on the three of them. It, it's not quite at the level of a trilateral alliance or or anything like NATO's Article Five. It's simply a commitment to consult. Uh, that I think is quite significant. Um, you know what's what's also notable to me is uh, the fact that. The three countries, uh, well, this isn't as remarkable for the U.S. and Japan, who've, who've said this in the past, but but South Korea signed on to a trilateral statement condemning uh, Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, and China was named directly, right? This is not something you see in the Yoon suk administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, for instance, which talks about these issues but avoids kind of directly calling out China. So the South Koreans have also gotten a little bit more forward-leaning. Um, you know, I think, Katie, you, you put it really well, right? The I think the underlying goal here... Uh, which we see in all three documents uh, announced at, uh, at the summit, is to set up the pillars of sustainable institutionalized trilateral cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and ROK. And I think the jury's still out on that, uh, right? I think the big question that uh, I have and I think uh, many analysts have is just how robust will trilateral cooperation be to political changes, uh, mostly mm-hmm. in, in Japan and South Korea, uh, but also in the United States, right? I think I think um, the Trump administration, dis, uh, you know, among its many effects on American alliances, certainly did not prioritize trilateralism. Uh, and of course, we've we've seen kind of the ebbs and flows in, in trilateral cooperation, uh, which isn't new, right? There's a history of trilateral cooperation going back all the way to the late 1990s and the establishment of the um, North Korea-specific Trilateral Coordination and Oversight Group, the TCOG, uh, between these three countries. But we've seen those ebbs and flows. And so given that we're now in this geopolitical moment in Northeast Asia where South Korea and Japan are a lot more concerned about North Korea, China, and even Russia, um, will these sort of external factors be sufficient to keep the so-called spirit of Camp David alive beyond 2023 and into future governments? Uh, or is this something that we're witnessing directly as a result of the fact that Kishida, Yoon, and Biden are three leaders that have determined this to be important for their own goals? And I think the jury's still out on that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I it was very comprehensive, and you sort of highlighted two things I wanted to discuss a little bit more in depth. So let's start with the the China question. You know, obviously, uh, South Korea and Japan are concerned about North Korea nuclear development, and that's one major issue in which they are both concerned. Um, let's talk about China. You know, we, we often look at East Asia and, and we discuss U.S.-China competition and its impact on the region. You know, what are the bilateral dynamics in the Japan-China relationship and the South Korea-China relationship that impact this trilateral as well? You know, from my understanding, Japan and Korea have not the same kind of relationship with China, and, and they're both very different relationships than the United States' relationship with China. So how, how do these bilaterals really kind of push and pull this trilateral in, in, in different ways? Yeah, I mean, to paint with a broad brush, I think I think it's, you know, the I think it's fair to say that both um, current, you know, both of the governments right now in Japan and South Korea are, are deeply skeptical of, of, of China and certainly don't view China as a partner, uh, even even if they sort of handle that in different ways. Uh, the South Korean government, uh, for instance, is a, is a lot less forward-leaning on the Taiwan question, on sort of calling out China publicly, on, on making statements about the regional security order in the way that the Japanese, for instance, aren't, uh, right? Japan's uh, national security documents um, passed by the Kishida administration are rather clear about the contingencies uh, and issues that they view as concerning. Uh, but for both Japan and South Korea, I think there's a recognition, of course, that 
you know, these are countries physically in Northeast Asia for, um, they simply cannot avoid having China as a neighbor. Uh, they have economic relations with China and a certain level of economic dependency on China that, that contours how they uh, approach these issues. Uh, and so, you know, when we, when we get to the, the trilateral meeting in Camp David um, and sort of coordination with the U.S. on this, it's interesting to sort of see, for instance, the announcement of a new annual trilateral dialogue on the Indo-Pacific, all right? Um, now, the, the Biden administration likes to say that the Indo-Pacific strategy is not the same thing as the China strategy, but I think implicitly in the trilateral at Camp David, a lot of what's being said about Indo-Pacific dialogue and cooperation does have China as uh, an important part of the subtext there, right? So this new dialogue is going to focus primarily on, quote, partnership with Southeast Asian and Pacific Island countries. But of course, the intention there is to ensure that the U.S., Japan, and South Korea can um, leverage their influence uh, in, in Southeast Asia and among the Pacific Island countries uh, in a way that keeps them ahead of China, so to speak. Um, you know, that said, I think uh, if... if if you look at sort of the long list of issues that came out of Camp David, you know, everything on scientific and technical cooperation, supply chain early warning, technology cooperation, uh, cooperation on cancer research, uh, you know, youth programs, um, there's, there's, I think, a, a strong attempt here at Camp David. And I wouldn't say attempt, I think it's, you know, largely successful to sort of suggest that this trilateral partnership uh, is um, affirmative, right? It's not it's not a partnership in opposition to Chinese influence. It has sort of unique offerings that will benefit the people of the US, Japan, and South Korea, but also um, benefit other countries in the Indo-Pacific. And I think this is pretty similar to how the Biden administration has approached, uh, for instance, the Quad, right? Where, where there's been an attempt since uh, Biden took office to uh, desecuritize the Quad and emphasize sort of more functional areas of cooperation, including sort of mm -hmm. vaccine research, uh, climate change, so on and so forth. And so that, I think, is is an, is an interesting and deliberate choice, uh, even if China is, I think, a substantial part of the background context uh, to why the three leaders ended up at Camp David. I'm glad you, you brought that up, because I do, obviously, this is a geopolitics podcast, so we focused on the geopolitical elements. But, you know, when, when you look at these relationships, many of these kinds of minilaterals have these functional areas that are maybe maybe a little less sexy to talk about, mm -hmm. uh, maybe not not as not as interesting to sort of go back and forth on, but are actually the important parts of these relationships. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I want to turn back to sort of, I think, something I harp on a lot. Uh, which is the the role of domestic politics in sort of forcing and shaping international relations. You know, obviously, there the there it took the Union administration in South Korea to kind of work on warming up the relationship with Japan in order to open the door, even I think, to this kind of trilateral, which the the three seem to want to institutionalize. Um, but if we look at the political calendar, there's a there's, there are always upcoming hurdles. These are three democracies uh, that have uh, vibrant uh, political debates within their, their countries. Uh, Japan has maybe a little bit less of a vibrant, I would say, uh, party changing uh, system than, than, than the other two. But, you know, the, we have a U.S. presidential election in 2024. Uh, Japan is slated for general elections, I think, by the end of October in 2025, South Korea will have a presidential election in 2027. Yoon is not eligible to run again. They have a, a one term limit. And so how do these sort of domestic political calendars pose a, a or, or I maybe 
suppose is the wrong word, but inspire sort of uncertainty, certainly among the chattering classes that this can be institutionalized. I think the United States is obviously the the first hurdle. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be a very interesting next year, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I think the burden is on the three, the three incumbent governments to demonstrate that Camp David is not an aberration. It's not a blip Mm -hmm. that's going to be overshadowed by political change. Uh, And, you know, I sort of talked about the role of external factors. I think it's important to not overinterpret the history of trilateralism, which has been very susceptible to domestic political changes. Because, you know, it is true that threat perceptions and public opinion in both South Korea and Japan have also shifted with regard to China, Russia, North Korea in ways that could support trilateral cooperation. Um, let me let me begin with South Korea, where I think, you know, the dynamics are really interesting. Uh, you know, I mentioned that Yoon has been unusually willing to spend political capital on rapprochement with Japan. Uh, but at the same time, he's he's still a fairly unpopular leader. Uh, you know, he wasn't elected with a particularly enthusiastic um, mandate from the South Korean public, uh, even among South Korean conservatives. Uh, his 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 support has been fairly, um, you know, mediocre. Um you mentioned the next general election. You know, South Korea is a one-term limit, as you said. Um, and if a progressive is elected, you know, South Korea does tend to have a strong kind of anti-incumbency effect in in presidential elections. Uh, if a progressive is elected, it's very difficult for me to actually see um, a lot of what's been agreed in Camp David kind of remaining unchanged. Although, it, it, you know, if you look at things like the multi-year plan for military exercises, cooperation on missile defense, information sharing, kind of the nuts and bolts of uh, expanding alliance security cooperation trilaterally, uh, I, I think what's being attempted here is to make it significantly more politically costly for South Korean progressives to kind of um, change, you know, re- reverse a lot of this uh, if if they do return to power. Uh, and I think a, a good example here, I think, is the debate that took place in the UN administration uh, about the 2016 uh, GSOMIA agreement, which was a, a voluntary intelligence sharing agreement bilaterally between Japan and South Korea that the Obama administration helped um, broker. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the UN administration uh, didn't take that final step of sort of fully pulling back. There was a debate about whether this actually suited South Korean national interests and and within the South Korean presidential office, you had sort of more um, kind of, you know, domestic policy advisors who sort of saw this as good politics, kind of advocating for ending the agreement. And then some of the more national security minded progressives actually saw the value of that. So you might have a similar dynamic at play. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right about uh, about Japanese politics. But, you know, I'd point out that within the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, uh, Kishida has to manage uh, sort of. Mm-hmm the more conservative ultranationalist flank that uh, certainly doesn't take a positive view of, uh, you know, uh, we talked about some of these difficulties on, on a recent podcast, but like, uh, you know, the South Korean Supreme Court decision on uh, wartime forced labor under imperial Japanese rule, the, um, you know, other other issues sort of pertaining to history. And so if, if those issues do take on a greater salience in South Korea, uh, where you know the National Assembly in South Korea can uh, can have an effect on these issues. We've seen the role the Supreme Court played as well. Um, that could have an effect on Kishida's ability to sort of push ahead, right? And, and we actually saw this in the in the months leading up to the Camp David summit. Uh, you know, Japan actually took a little bit longer to reciprocate uh, Yoon's kind of forward leaning interest in promoting trilateral cooperation, and and, and eventually you know Tokyo got there. Uh, but I don't think it was as easy for Kishida as it as it was for you. Uh, and then, of course, you know the elephant in the room in the United States is you know um, Donald Trump, effectively, where uh, it's it's very difficult for anyone to imagine that a second Trump administration would prioritize the Camp David spirit or trilateralism in Northeast Asia. 
Uh, so those factors, I think, are are very much big question marks about uh, institutionalizing this cooperation. Uh, the good news here is, uh, you know, the Biden administration has um, more than a year to uh, deliver on many of the um, plans that have been outlined at Camp David, and Yun and Kishida don't face immediate political pressures. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I think there is real potential here for this to snowball. Um, but again, you know, it could hit a brick wall uh, depending on the political factors uh, in in South Korea and Japan. All right. Well, I, I think before we end, I do want to turn back to North Korea. You know, was was there a North Korean response to this trilateral? I, I assume there was, but I, I don't know its content. So I'm, I'm curious what the North Korean sort of response to this was and, and any any current thoughts you have about North Korea. I know they recently had a failed missile launch or a satellite launch, was it? Yeah, they had a failed satellite launch, which I don't think had anything to do with the trilateral summit. <laughs> they already told us that they were going to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, they issued a statement uh, basically saying that, you know, the tri- uh, the Camp David summit brings Northeast Asia closer to nuclear war. They obviously don't they obviously don't uh, welcome this development. Uh, and, and it's very much in line also with how China and Russia view uh, the uh, the development of this uh, trilateral partnership. Uh, I think, you know, there's been attempts to kind of portray the trilateralism that's happening now between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea as potentially the first step by the United States to setting up some kind of multilateral alliance structure in Asia. I think that's incredibly mm-hmm. premature. Uh, I think, you know, we've just discussed uh, the political controversies that trilateralism has already promoted. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for me to imagine sort of the political outcry they would be if, uh, if you know, South Korea and Japan made uh, commitments to um, come to the other's defense, uh, right? Mm-hmm. That, that That is a bridge too far. You know, uh, I should also mention that the two countries have territorial disputes uh, in the East Sea slash Sea of Japan, uh, another dispute. They can't agree on what to call the body of water between them. Uh, so, you know, there are sort of real, uh, real issues there. Um, but, you know, with the North Koreans, I think this is, um, you know, something to be expected. I think the North Koreans in particular recognize that their behavior has been an accelerant for trilateral cooperation in the past, right? Jisomia mm-hmm. in 2016 under the Obama administration, very much promoted by North Korean developments, the Trilateral Information Sharing Agreement, or TISA in 2014, similarly due to North Korea stepping up its missile launches and activities. The 1999 TCOG, as I mentioned earlier, came not long after North Korea's uh, Taepodong-1 launch over Japan uh, in 1998. Uh, so this is a pattern that the North Koreans have observed, uh, and I'm sure despite their public statements, uh, they are not entirely surprised uh, to see this um, this uh, summit in, in, uh, uh, in Camp David. All right. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to talk about uh, East Asia with you, Ankit. Uh, for, our, for our listeners, please uh, leave us a review. Send Ankit and I an email if there's a topic you want to hear us cover. Uh, we apologize for the somewhat irregular schedule this summer, uh, which will last, I think, for a couple more weeks, but we'll, we'll get back to it. So thanks for hanging on with us and uh, have a great day. Thanks a lot, Katie. Talk to you later.